16, 17, God was pleased to raise up a moment in history, a man for that moment who was on a mission. And his mission was single. His mission was to return or to call the church to proper belief in the Word of God as its sole authority. Not tradition. Not history. Not, uh, not witchcraft. Uh, not superstition. But the Word of God. And he wrote there from that five treatises, five pieces of a, of a treatise. In the, in, the, in the five were Sola Scriptura, Solus Christus, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, and Sola Dea Gloria. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, for God's glory alone. This is a summary of, of his theology. And it wasn't just Martin Luther, by the way. As you'll hear this morning in the sermon, there were many who uh, gave their lives for this before him and after him. And so one of the ways we celebrate that here, we, we had a biographical sketch of the life of C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon lived in the 1800s. He was not in the Reformation, but he was a son of the Reformation, we might say. Um, well, to be more exact. He was a son of the Puritans, and he was a grandson of the Reformers. Uh, he, he was a man full of color and full of life and was used by God as much as any man in the nation of England's history to bring about revival uh, in his day. What we do in this hour, uh, just for full disclosure, because a few years ago I preached a sermon by Richard Sibbs, and several of you contacted me telling me that's the greatest sermon I had preached. And it was not my sermon. And I thought I would made that clear. I took that two ways. One, I need to preach better. And two, that you really were blessed by what was done that day. Uh, some of you anyway. But is our pattern uh, here on these days to preach either a sermon that is historical. To take a sermon and to recast it in our day and preach it, present it. Or to uh, take some part of sermons uh, which we've done with Bonhoeffer uh, in the past um, and done similar things. But what we'll do today is take a sermon that was preached by C.H. Spurgeon on September the 3rd, 1871. It was delivered at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Upon its delivery, it had such an effect on the people that they began to print it and dis disperse it among the Baptist churches of England. And attached to it was the note, preach this sermon, every word, exactly, for God has chosen to use it. And he used it in all of those churches also. A mini revival broke out in England in 1871, carried about on the wings of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of his word, and particularly this sermon was one of the, one of the greatest. Um, I'm sure I will not preach it with the flurry and the, and the finality that Spurgeon preached it. But we pray God will use it here the same way. Don't be bothered by this. In other words, God can use anything, anytime, especially a good, solid exposition of His Word. His text for that morning was Isaiah 66, verse 8. So you can turn to Isaiah 66, verse 8. I want to read Isaiah 66 to begin. 
Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. This is God's uh, rendering of what the people of Israel were doing in Isaiah's day in offering false offerings. Uh, they were basically, in God's eyes, an abomination. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at His word, your brothers who hate you and cast you out by my, for my name's sake, have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to His enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord. Shall I, who's, who cause to bring forth, shut the womb, says your God. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her. All you who love her, rejoice with her in joy. All you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. That you may drink deeply and delight from the glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon her hip, and be bounced upon her knee, as one whom is mo his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see, and your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword will with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, midst, eating pig's flesh, and the abomination and mice shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, 
And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on their dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The text of the sermon this morning is Isaiah 66 verse 8. As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Israel, in this time in her history, when Isaiah is writing, had fallen into the lowest of conditions, but an inward yearning of heart was beginning to be born among the people and driven about in their midst, desiring a divine blessing. And no sooner had this anxious desire become uh, intense than God heard the voice of its cry. And then came great blessing. It was so at the time of the restoration of the captives from Babylon. And it was most evidently so in the days of our own Lord. A faithful company had continued still to, to expect the coming of the Lord's Messiah. The messenger who would precede him. They waited till he should suddenly come in his temple. The twelve tribes represented by an elect remnant cried day and night unto God Most High. And when at last their prayers reached the fullness of their vehemence, then God brought forth the labor of a child. Then began the age of blessedness in which the barren woman did keep house and become the joyful mother of a nation. The Holy Spirit was given and multitudes were born to the church of God. Yes, we may say a nation was born in a day at Pentecost. The wilderness, the solitary place, which had been a desert, rejoiced at the blossoming of the rose, earnestly desiring that God may give a large spiritual blessing to His church this morning through the subject to which our minds are directed by this text. I shall first ask you to note that in order to obtain an increase in the church, we must first labor. And then secondly, this travail is frequently followed by surprising results. I shall then have to show you why both travail and result are desirable and pronounce woe on those who stand back and will not come near. And then pronounce a blessing on such as shall be moved by God's own spirit to labor for souls. First of all, it is clear that the text says, as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. There must be labor before, before there will be a spiritual birth. 
Let me first establish this fact from history. Before there was, was a fall, has fallen a benediction from God upon His people, it has been by great searching of heart. Israel, when she was in her time of oppression in Egypt, her spirit was laboring for release. But she was almost convinced that she would forever be a bondservant to those Egyptians. She began to believe that it was her miserable lot before God and that she was meant to carry out her days in suffering with a high hand and an outstretched arm, God heard His people's cry. He heard them cry out and it came into His ears and He stretched out His hand and He delivered His people from Egypt. Doubtless, many a heart-rending prayer an appeal was made to heaven by mothers for their babies which were ripped from their breast and thrown into the river. Many cried out under the smarting lashes of their taskmasters saying, Oh God, visit us. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, remember your covenant and deliver us. This labor brought its result. God heard their labor and He delivered them through mighty plagues which He poured out on Israel. Israel marched forth with joy. But that did not happen without the travail of the soul. As we shall not have time to go on in many instances this way, let us take a long leap into history to the days of David. The era of the son of Jesse was evidently a time of religious revival. God was honored and His service maintained in the midst of Judah's land in the days of this royal composer. But it is clear to the readers of Scripture that David was the subject of spiritual throes and pains of the most intense kind. His bosom throbbed and heaved like that of a man made fit to be the leader of a great revival. What yearnings he had. He thirsted after God, after the living God. What pretensions Petitions he poured out for, for God in Zion and make the vine. He asked God to make the vine which he planted flourish once again. It was only after much travail of soul that David saw the revival come in his day. Remember also the good king Josiah who in his day found the law and realized that God's wrath was ready to fall on his people because of their disobedience. I tell you, he rended his clothes, fell to his knees, and pleaded with God that he might have mercy on the people. And a great revival broke forth at once. There came a glorious reformation as they purged the land of idols and caused the Passover to be observed in ways in which it had never been observed before. Labors of heart among the godly produced delightful change. It was the same with the work of Nehemiah. His book begins with a description of the travail, the labor of his heart. He was a patriot, a man of nervous, excitable temperament and keen sensibility for God's honor. And when his soul had felt great bitterness and longing, then he rose up to build and blessing restore the city. In the early dawn of Christian history, there was a pre preparation of the church before it received its increase. Look at the obedient disciples sitting in the upper room, waiting with anxious hope. Every heart there had been plowed with anguish by the death of their Savior. Each one was praying to receive into his own heart the power of the Holy Spirit. 
There with one heart and one mind they tarried, but not without wrestling in prayer. And so the comforter was given, and 3,000 souls were added to the church. I tell you, in that day, a nation was born in one day. The like living zeal and vehement desire have always been predictable of the church of God before any season of refreshing. Think not that Luther was the only man that wrought the Reformation. There were hundreds who sighed and cried in secret in the cottages of the Black Forest. In the homes of Germany and on the hills of Switzerland, there were hearts breaking for the Lord's appearing in strange places. They might have been found in the palaces of Spain, in the dungeons of the Inquisition, among the canals of Holland and in the green lanes of England. Women, as they hid their Bibles lest their lives would be forfeited, cried out in spirit, How long, O Lord? There was pain as of a woman giving birth to a baby. In secret places there were tears and bitter lamentations on the high places of the field where the mighty striving of spirit. And so at length there came the grand revulsion which made the Vatican to rock and reel from its foundations to its pinnacles. There has been evermore in the history of the church the travail before there has been the result. And this, dear friends, while it is true on the large scale, having their sermons printed, for they said, you cannot print me. That observation is very much to the point. A soul winner throws himself into what he says. As I have sometimes said, we must ram ourselves into our cannons. We must fire ourselves at our hearers. And when we do this, then by God's grace, their hearts are often carried away by storm. Do any of you desire your children to be converted? You shall have them saved when you agonize for them. Many a parent who has been privileged to see his son walking in the truth will tell you that before the blessing came, he had spent many hours in prayer and earnest pleading with God. And then it was that the Lord visited the child and renewed his soul. I tell you of a story of a man, a young man, who, though raised in the church, denied the faith as a young man and walked away. But his father and mother, as blessed as they were, continued to pray and labor to see this young man saved. They invited him to their church, and upon attending, he heard a very good sermon. He was impressed. It was glorious. He was speaking of heaven. The young man took no notice of what was being said, but how it was being said, until he looked down the pew only to see his own dear father and dear mother weeping. He could not understand it. Why are my mother and father weeping? This is a great sermon. Upon returning home, he asked his father, Father, why have you wept? We have heard a capital sermon. His father said, I weep not for myself. I shall partake in this joy, but oh, my dear son, I could not help but think you will never see these glories unless you come to Christ. Upon hearing the father, the mother said with broken heart, it is our desire, son, that you come to know Jesus. I tell you, if you want your children to know the Lord, your soul must break that their soul might come in. That young man, I'm happy to report, has returned many a time to hear the gospel preached and now 
He believes. One doesn't receive unless he labors. I have to think I have established this fact. So for a minute or two, let me show you the reason that this is true. Why it is that there must be the anxiety before there is a desirable result gained. For answer, it might suffice to say that God has so appointed it. It is the order of nature. For the child is not born into the world without the sorrow of the mother, nor is the bread which sustains life procured from the earth unless it is tilled. In the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread. was a part of the primeval curse. Now as it is in the natural, so it is in the spiritual. There shall not come the blessing we seek without first of all the earnest yearning for, for it. Why, it is so even in ordinary business. We say, no sweat, no sweet. No pain, no gain. No meal, no meal. If there be no labor, there shall be no profit. He that would be rich must toil for it. He that would acquire fame must spend to be spent to win it. It is ever so. There must ever be labor. And then the desire comes. God has appointed it so. Let us accept the decree. But better still, He has ordained this for our good. If souls were given us without any effort, anxiety or prayer it would be our loss to have it so because the anxiety which throbs within a compassionate spirit exercises his grace they produce grateful love to God they try his faith in the power of God to save others they drive him to the mercy seat they strengthen his patience and perseverance and every grace within the man is educated and increased by the labor of his soul for the souls of the lost. As labor is now a blessing, so also is soul travail. Men are fashioned more fully into the likeness of Christ through the labor and the whole church is by the same emotion quickened and energized. The fire of our own spiritual life is fanned by that same breath with which our prayers invite to come from the four winds to breathe upon the slain. Besides, dear friend, the zeal that God excites within us is often the means of effecting the purpose which we desire. After all, God does not give conversions to eloquence. He gives conversions to heart. The power in the hand of God's Spirit for conversion is, hearing, is a hearing heart coming into contact with heat from the preached word. This is God's battle axe and weapons of war in the crusade. He's pleased to use the yearnings, longings, and sympathies of Christian men as the means of compelling the careless to think, constraining the hardened to feel, driving the unbelieving to consider. I have little confidence in elaborate speech and polished sentences as the means of reaching men's heart, but I have... Great faith in the simple-minded Christian woman who must have souls converted or she will weep her eyes out for them. And in the humble Christian who prays day and night in secret and then avails himself of every opportunity to address a loving word to sinners. The emotion we feel and the affection we bear are the most powerful implements of soul winning. God the Holy Spirit usually breaks hard hearts by tender hearts. 
Besides the travail qualifies for the proper taking of the offspring. God does not commit His newborn children to people who do not care for conversion. If He ever allows them to fall into such hands, they suffer very serious loss. Who is so fit to encourage a newborn believer as the man who first anguished before the Lord for that man's soul? The church that never travailed should God send him a hundred converts would be unfit to teach them and train them and disciple them. She would not know what to do with these little children. Well, she would grieve the Spirit of God. Let us thank God, brethren, if He gives us any degree of earnest anxiety or sympathy for the lost which mark the soul-winning men and women. And let us ask to have more for in proportion as we have it, we shall be qualified to be the instruments in the hand of the Spirit of nursing and cherishing God's sons and daughters. Once more, there is a great benefit in the law which makes travail necessary to spiritual birth because it secures the glory of God. If you want to be lowered in your own esteem, try to convert a child. I would like those brethren who believe so much in free will and the natural goodness of the human heart to try some children that I could bring to them and see whether they could break their hearts and make them love the Savior. Why, sir, you never think yourself so great a fool as after trying in your own strength to bring a sinner to the Savior? Oh, how often have I come back defeated from arguing with an, with an awakened person whom I've sought to comfort. I did think I had some measure of skill in handling sorrowful cases, but I've been compelled to say to myself, what a simpleton I am. God the Holy Spirit must take this case in hand, for I am frustrated when one is tried in a sermon to reach a certain person who is living in sin. You had learned afterward that he enjoyed the sermon, which he ought to have smarted under. And then you say, ah, now I see what a weak worm I am. And if good be done, God shall have the glory. Your longing then that others should be saved and your vehemence of spirit shall secure for God the glory due His name. He is a jealous God. He shall share His glory with no man. And now having established the fact that travail is necessary, and shown the reason for it, let us notice how this travail shows itself. Usually when God intends greatly to bless a church, it will begin in this way. Two or three persons distressed at their low of state, a state of the church and become troubled even to anguish. Perhaps they do not speak to one another or know of their common grief, but they begin to pray with flaming desire and untiring importunity. The passion to see the church revived rules them. They think of it when they go to rest. They dream of it on their bed. They muse on it in the streets. This one thing eats them up. They suffer great heaviness and continual sorrow in heart for perishing sinners. They travail in the birth of souls. I've happened to become the center of certain brethren in this church. One of them said to me the other day, Sir, I pray day and night for God to prosper our church. I long to see gather, the gatherings greater 
And I long to see greater things in the gathering. God is blessing us, but we want much more. I'll stop there, just taking aside to say this. This is in a period in 1871 when over 20,000 people are coming to hear this man preach every Sunday. And he has people in his pew saying, we want more. This is the kind of labor of the soul that Spurgeon speaks of. This is the kind of labor it takes in Zion to see people saved. I thank God heartily, thinking it to be a sure sign of a coming blessing. Sometime after, another friend who probably now hears me speak, but we do not know anything about the other, felt the same yearning and must needs let me know it. He too is anxious, longing, begging, crying for revival. And thus, from three or four quarters, I've had the same message. And I feel hopeful because of these tokens of the good of God. When the sun rises, the mountaintops first catch the light. And those who constantly live near God will be the first to feel the heat of a revival. And then its influence spreads into the valley. The Lord give me a dozen importunate pleaders and lovers of souls. And by His grace, we shall see all of London or Calhoun County reached for the glory of God. The work would go on with the masses of you Christians. Many of you only hinder the march of the army. But given a dozen lion-like, lamb-like men burning with intense love of Christ and of the souls of lost people, nothing will be impossible for their faith. I often feel I'm not so myself, but I aspire and long to be reckoned among these men. Oh, may God give us the first sign of the travail in earnest ones and twos. By degree, the individuals are drawn together by sacred affinity. And the prayer meetings become very different. The brother who talked 20 minutes of what he called prayer and yet never asked a single thing gives up his ramblings and begins to plead with God for souls. In broken sentences and in weeping eyes, he cries that God may save some poor sinner. While the friend who used to relate his experiences goes through the doctrines of grace and calls that a prayer, forgets the rigmarole and begins agonizing before the throne of God. And not only this, but little knots here and there come together in their cottages and in their little rooms crying out mightily to God. The result will be that the minister, even if he does not know the feeling in the hearts of the people, will grow fervent in himself. He will preach more evangelically. Hearts of his people will be set afire and fervency in the preacher will grow. He will preach more and more. Not stone cold stereotypes, but he will be alive. Meanwhile, not with the preacher only, but with the blessing. The hearers who love the Lord will be blessed. One will be trying to plan for getting in the young people. Another will be looking after the strangers in the aisles who come to hear the gospel. Another brother will make a vehement attempt to preach the gospel at the street corner. Another will open a room down a dark court. Another will visit the sick and the dying in the hospital. All sorts of holy plans will be invented. Zeal will break out in many directions. All this will be spontaneous. Nothing will be forced. Nothing will be planned. If you want to get up a revival, as is the term in our day, you can do it. Just as you can grow tasteless strawberries in the winter by artificial heat. 
There are ways and means of doing that kind of thing. But I tell you, the genuine work of God needs no plans, needs no schemes. It is altogether spontaneous and driven by the powerful Spirit of God. If you see a snowdrop next February in your garden, you will feel persuaded that spring is on the way. The artificial flower maker could put as many snowdrops there that he pleases, but that would be no index of a coming spring. But when fervor comes of itself, without human direction, without human control, then is it of the Lord. When men's hearts heave and break like the mold of a garden until the benediction is on the way, Travail is no mockery, but a real agony of the whole nature. But may such be in this church and throughout the whole Israel of God. Secondly, now with great brevity, let us consider that the result is often very surprising. It's frequently surprising for rapidity, for how fast it happens. The text says... As soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. God's works were not tied by time. The more spiritual a force he is, the less it lies within the chains of time. The electric current, which was great, greater nearness to the spiritual than the grosser forms of materialism, is inconceivably rapid from that very season. And by its time is all but annihilated. The influence of the Spirit of God was a, a force most spiritual, more quick than anything beneath the sun. As soon as we agonize in soul, the Holy Spirit can, if He pleases, convert the person for whom we plead. While we are yet speaking, He hears, and before we call, He answers. Now, there's no room here for the application of mathematics. Spiritual forces are not calculated by an arithmetic of this world, a truth which is calculated to strike the mind in one man today may readily enough produce a like effect in a million minds tomorrow. The, with the Spirit of God, our present instrumentality will suffice to win the world for Jesus. Without Him, 10,000 times as much talent, as much force mustered by the soul of a man can't convert one soul. The spread of truth is not reckonable by time. The Spirit of God is able to operate upon the minds of men instantaneously. Witness this case of Paul. Between now and tomorrow morning, he could excite holy thought in all the minds of all the thousands of millions of sons of Adam. And if prayer were mighty enough and strong enough, why should it not be done on some bright day? We are not impoverished in him. We are impoverished in our own bowels. All the fault lies here with us. Oh, for the labor that would produce immediate results. But the result is surprising also, not only in its rapidity, but in the greatness of it. It said, shall a nation be born in a day? As soon as, as ever Zion was in distress concerning her children, tens of thousands came to build Jerusalem and established her fallen state. So in answer to prayer, God not only bestows speedy blessings, but great blessings. There were fervent prayers in that upper room before the day of Pentecost had fully come. And what a great answer God gave. When Peter's sermon was preached, 
3,000 souls were added that very day. And if prayer went up to God with eagerness and vehemence and importunity, then would a blessing descend so copiously among all of us so as to amaze us. But enough of this, for I must need pass to the next point. Third, this travail and its result are abundantly desirable. Preeminently desirable at this very hour. The world is perishing for a lack of knowledge. Now this is in 1871. We just almost, some of you have finished, but we've almost finished with our home group. And I want you to notice the likeness to what David Platt writes in his book that we've been studying and what Spurgeon says in this sermon. Did anyone among us ever lay China on his heart? Your imagination cannot grapple with the population of this mighty empire. Without God, without Christ, strangers according to the commonwealth of Israel. But it is not China alone. There are other vast nations lying in darkness. The great serpent hath coiled himself around the globe. And who shall set the world free from him? Reflect upon this one city in London with thousands of unconverted sinners. What sin the moon sees? What sin the Sabbath sees? Alas, for the transgression of this wicked city is greater than even Babylon of old. The guilty stand ever before God in this very city. Brethren, there is no hope for China, no hope for the world, no hope for our own city while the church is sluggish and lethargic. Through the church, the blessing is usually bestowed. Christ multiplies the bread and gives it to the disciples. The multitudes can only get it from the disciples. Oh, it is time. It's high time for churches were awakened to seek the good of the dying myriads across the sea. Moreover, brethren, the power of evil are ever active. We may sleep, but Satan never sleeps. The church plows lies yonder, rusting in the shade. Do you not see it to your shame? But the plow of Satan goes from end to end in this great field. He leaves no headland, but he plows deep while sluggish churches Sleep, may we be stirred as we see the awful activity of this evil spirit and persons who are under his sway. How industriously pernicious literature is spread abroad. And with what zeal do men for fresh ways of sinning seek? He is eminent among men who can invent fresh songs to gratify lasciviousness in the tongue or find new spectacles to delight unclean eyes. Oh God, are your enemies awake and only your friends sleep? Oh sufferer, once bathed in bloody sweat in Gethsemane, is there not one of the twelve awake but Judas? Are they all asleep except the Savior? May God arouse for His infinite mercy's sake His church. Besides this, my brethren, when a church is not serving God, mischief is brewing within herself. While she's not bringing others in, her own heart is becoming weak and pulsations are growing dim and her entire constitution is a prey to decline. The church must either bring forth children unto God or else die of consumption. She has no alternative. A church must either be fruitful or it must rot. And of all churches out of our sight, 
as Abraham buried Sarah. For above ground they breed a pestilence of skepticism. For men say, is this religion? And taking it to be so, they forego true religion altogether. In other words, Spurgeon would say, Grace Fellowship, if we're not about winning souls, we are losing the war. If we're not bringing in new converts, our church should rot. If we're not about travailing and laboring to see men saved, we are a mockery to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he would pray that we cease to exist. And then worst of all is God is not glorified. If there be no yearning of heart in the church and no conversions, where is the travail of the Redeemer's soul? Where, Emmanuel, where are the trophies of your terrible conflict? Where are the jewels for your crown? You shall have your own. Your Father's will shall not be frustrated. You shall be adored, but as yet we see it not. Had hard are men's hearts, and they will not love thee. Unyielding are their wills, and they will not on your sovereignty. Oh, weep because Jesus is not honored. The foul oath still curdles our blood as we hear it. And blasphemy usurps the place of grateful song. Oh, by the wounds and bloody sweat, by the cross and the nail and the spear, I beseech you, followers of Christ, be earnest that Jesus Christ's name may be known and loved through the earnest, agonizing endeavor of His church. And now I must come to a close by, in the fourth place, noticing the woe which will surely come to those who hinder the travail of the church. And so prevent the bringing forth of her children. An earnest spirit cannot complete its exhortations to zeal without pronouncing a denunciation upon the indifferent. What said the leading lady of old who had gone forth against the enemies of Israel? They're cursed. Some such curse will assuredly come upon every professing Christian who is backward in helping the church in the day on her, of her soul's prevail. And who are they that hinder her? I answer, every worldly Christian that progresses not the gospel. Every member of a church who's living in secret sin, every member who is tolerating in his heart anything that he knows to be wrong, who is not seeking eagerly his own personal sanctification, is to that extent hindering the work of the Spirit of God. Be you clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. For to the extent that we maintain known unholiness, we restrain the Spirit. He cannot work by us as long as any conscious sin is tolerated. It is not over breaking of commandments that I am now speaking of, brethren, but I include worldliness also, a care for carnal things, and a carelessness about spiritual things. Having enough grace just to make us hope that you are a Christian, but not enough to prove that you are. Yet, complete enough to restrain the blessing. This robs the treasure of the church, hinders her progress. Oh, brethren, if any of you are described in this description, repent and do not turn away from the first work of loving Christ and God help you to the foremost proportion as you will be a hindrance, if not, and left behind by God in His work. 
They are also guilty who distract the mind of the church from the subject at hand. They come up with other alternate plans. They seek after new gospels. They invent new ministries rather than the preaching of God's word. Let him mind soul winning and not turn to a Christian church into a public club or political pulpit. Let us fight out our politics somewhere else but not inside the church of God. Therefore, our own business is soul winning. Our own banner is the cross. Our own leader is the crucified king. Inside the church, there may be minor things that take off thoughts of men to seeking souls. Little things that can be made beneath the eye that is microscopic to swell into great offenses. It must need be that the offense come, but woe unto him by whom the offense comes. We must by no means turn aside to this or that. Not even golden apples must tempt us into this grace race. There lies the mark, and until it is reached, we must never pause, but onward press for Christ's sake. Above all, my brethren, we shall be hindering the travail of the church if we do not share in the labor. Many church members that think nothing wrong, they make no trouble. They think everything's all right. Not at all, sir. Here is a chariot and we are all engaged in dragging it. Some of you do not put your hand to pull. Well then, the rest of us have to labor so much more. And the worst of it is, we have to draw you also. While you do not add to the strength which draws, you increase the weight that is drawn. It is all very well for you to say, but I do not hinder. You do hinder. You cannot help but hinder. Unless you are in the work of saving souls, you hinder the work. Oh, I cannot bear to think of you. That I should be a hindrance to my own soul's growth is a bad thing. But I should stand in the way of the people of God and cool their courage and dampen their passion. My master, let it never be. Sooner let me sleep among the clods of the valley than be a hindrance to the meanest work that is ever done in your name. And as any good Baptist, he doesn't close on his fourth point like he promised. He goes to the fifth point and final. Now I must close, not with this note of woe, but a word of blessing. Depend upon it. There shall come a great blessing to any of you who feel the soul travail that brings souls to God. Your own heart will be watered. You know the old illustration so often used that is now almost worn out of the two travelers who passed the man frozen in the snow. And thought to be dead, the one said, I have enough to do to keep myself alive. I will hasten on. But the other said, I cannot pass a fellow creature while there is at least a breath in him. He stooped down and began to warm the frozen man by rubbing him with great vigor. And at last the poor fellow opened his eyes and came back to life and animation and walked along with the man who had restored him to life. And what think you was the outcome of the first man who helped him not? It was not very long until the good Samaritan and the revived man walked past the other man, stiff, frozen. He had died. His blood has ceased to flow. The friction that the good Samaritan had used in the cause of saving the other man's life had kept his own soul alive. Moreover, it will not be a joy to feel that you have done what you could 
It is always well on a Sunday evening for a preacher to feel when he gets home. Well, I may not have preached as I could wish, but I have preached the Lord Jesus and poured forth all my heart and I could do no more. He sleeps soundly on that thought. After a day spent in doing all the good you can, even if you have met with no success, you can lean your head on Christ's bosom and fall asleep, feeling that if souls be not gathered, yet you have reward. If men are lost, it is some satisfaction to us that they were not lost because we failed to present to them a great salvation. There is no greater joy except the joy of our own communion with Christ than this joy of bringing another to Christ. Yes, wife, the husband's heart will be one when your heart is perfectly consecrated. Yes, mother, the girl shall love the Savior when you love him better. Yes, teacher, God means to bless your class, but not until, first of all, he has made you fit to receive the blessing. Why, now, if your children were to be converted through your teaching, you would be mildly proud of it. God knows you could not bear such success and does not mean to give it until he has laid you low at his feet and emptied you of yourself and filled you with himself. And now I ask the prayers of this church that God would send us a time of revival. I have not to complain that I have labored in vain and spent my strength for nothing far from it. I have not even to think that the blessing is withdrawn from the preaching of the word even in a measure. For I have never had so many cases of conversion in my life as I have known since I have been restored from my sickness the previous year. I partly account for it from the fact that you cannot fish in one pond always and catch as many fish as you did at first. Perhaps the Lord has saved all of you he means to save. Sometimes I'm afraid he has. And then it will be of little use for me to keep on preaching. And I had better shift quarters and try somewhere else. It would be a melancholy thought if I believed it. But I do not believe it. I only fear it. The Savior surely has more souls to save in this very congregation. Oh, that you may be made to trust this morning. To trust in the Savior to the glory of His grace. We must begin to plead with God to send His Spirit in revival. That our ministry here may be in great power to the glory of God. We cannot go back. We have placed our hand to the plow the curse will be on us if we turn back. Remember, Lot's wife, it must be onward with us. It must be onward, backward. It cannot be in the name of God, the eternal. Let us gird up our loins by the power of His Spirit and go onward, conquering through the blood of the Lamb. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.